there's a question that I think it's important for every American, but especially every Southerner to ask of themselves. And it says, is our faith because of our culture or is our faith because we believe that Jesus is Lord? Is our faith because we, because of our culture, because of where we were born, because of what our heritage is, because of what our lineage is, because of who our mom and dad are, because of uh, the place we grew up and the church we went to, or is it because in genuinely in the, in the fire of our bones we believe that Jesus is the Lord? Because you see, there is a form of Christianity There is a form of Christianity, particularly here in the South, that is less than true Christianity. That there can be a temptation for each of us to want to be more Christian when it benefits our businesses, when it gets our husband or our wives off of our backs, when it makes our mom and dad leave us alone, when it brings some type of social benefit into our lives. In, in other words, there can be a temptation for us to have a faith of convenience. That when being a Christian is beneficial, we are a Christian. When talking like a Christian is beneficial, we talk like a Christian. When, we, when, when relating to others on the basis of a Christian faith is beneficial, we relate to others on the basis of a Christian faith. But when we need to put that down, when we need to be of the world, when we need to be by ourselves, when we begin to act in business, when we begin to, to respond in circumstances and in crises, we put those things down and we become something entirely different. That our faith is not so much a conviction that Jesus is Lord ruling over every aspect of our lives, so much as it is a convenience that we are able to pull out whenever we need to be able to utilize in a way that is most beneficial to us within our culture. Recently, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research partnered together to do some research, to do a study. They were doing a study on the nature of American Christianity. Did you know that in the United States of America, 65% or more than 6 out of 10 people would say that they are a Christian? If you bring that into the southeast, into the Bible Belt, 85%, almost 9 out of 10, 8.5 out of 10 people that you survey will say that they are in fact a believer in Jesus. But you know what this study found? This study found that 52% of people in America believe that Jesus was a good teacher but not God. 52%, half Half, half of the people surveyed believe that Jesus was in fact a good teacher, but not God. Let's zero that down even more. 30% of those that are self-proclaimed evangelical, meaning they attend a church like ours, a church that would consider itself to be orthodox in its, in its convictions, orthodox in its doctrine, self-professed evangelical Christians, that 30% of them, 30% believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but he is not God. That is, that is, they are trying to hold on to a form of their Christian heritage while at the same time dismissing the very heartbeat of true, convictional, doctrinal Christianity. Now, why would we do that? Why would we do that? Why is it that we would lay down the most core tenet of the Christian faith for something less? We would do it out of convenience. We would do it to accommodate the sexual ethic that we want to accommodate. 
we, we would do it to be able to accommodate the lifestyles that we want to accommodate. To be able to accommodate the self-indulgence that we want to be able to accommodate. To be able to accommodate the materialism that we want to be able to accommodate. To be able to raise our children without the, the pressures of what does Jesus think about this pressing in on us all the time. To be able to live our lives however it is that we want to live them while at the same time being able to cling to some form of a Christian heritage. Brothers and sisters, that is not a faith of conviction. That is not a faith of orthodox Christianity. That is a faith of convenience, imagined, a figment of our own imaginations. And so that brings us back to our question. Is your faith because of where you live and what you want? Or is your faith because you genuinely believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That Jesus has done what he says he's done and that Jesus is going to do what he says that he's going to do and so what I want us to do is over the next two weeks I want us to look at this question I want us to look and see how it is that we can know whether or not our faith is a faith of convenience or a faith of conviction this week we'll look at convenience next week we'll look at conviction you'll remember where we left off last week Last week, they're right on the edge of Canaan. They're right on the edge of the promised land where God has sent them in. He said, I am giving this to you. I am giving this to you. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. It is a land that is the fulfillment of my promise to Abraham, and it's yours. I'm giving it all to you. And so they send 12 spies in as a test of their faith to see all of the goodness, all of the bounty that God was giving over to them, and at the same time to see what laid ahead the enemies that the Lord himself would, would slay for their benefit. So the spies go and the spies return and 10 out of the 12 spies don't pass the test. 10 out of the 12 spies say this. They say, man, the land is good. Like the land is really good. The only way to describe how good the land is is to use the exact words that God used. It is to say that it is a land that flows with milk and honey. Man, they bring a cluster of grapes that's like hauling a Volkswagen between them, right? I mean, it is primo land. It is fertile. It is the jackpot. It is a place in which a nation can thrive and grow and be all the things that God had told them that they would be, where they would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. They said, but as good as it is, it's never going to be ours. It's never going to be ours because this is not just a land that is bountiful. This is not just a land that is fertile. This is not just a land that has a huge cluster of graves. This is a land of giants. This is the land of the Nephilim. This is a land of people who are enormous in size and have their enormous armies and have their giant swords, and we have no chance to go up against them. So we should turn back. Now you'll remember there were two. There was a minority. There was a minority among the spies, two of them, Caleb and Joshua. We heard him read again this morning as Scott read the text that they, they stood and they said, no, 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 no. If the Lord has given it, if the Lord has offered it to us, if the Lord has promised it to us, let's go. Let's take it. Let's not waste a second. Let's go on in and enjoy it. And so there's the question before Israel this morning. The question before Israel, what will they do? Who will they listen to? Will they listen to the majority? Will they listen to all of those who have seen the bounty of the land, but at the same time seen the giants of the land who are standing there, trembling in their togas, afraid to move forward? Or will they listen to the promise of God? 
Will they, are they willing to go with a minority report and the promise of God that God has given it to them regardless of what their eyes tell them? Regardless of what their nerves tell them? Regardless of what that knot in their stomachs tell them? But the first thing I want you to see this morning is that you'll notice that a convenient faith prioritizes the majority opinion over God's word. A convenient faith prioritizes the majority opinion over God's word. See, the choice before Israel is whether or not they would receive the spies' report as good news or bad news. Because there was both, right? There was both. On one hand, it could be very good news what the spies have said. What the spies have said exceeds their expectation. It exceeds all hopes that they had had that they could be a prosperous nation. God had said, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you a land that flows with milk and honey. They go there and all they see is prosperity. They go there and all they see is the opportunity to be able to thrive and to be better than than they could have ever imagined. And so they have the opportunity in front of them to view this with the eyes of faith, to view this through the lens of the promise of God. And if they view it through the lens of the promise of God, then this spy report is the greatest news ever. This is the greatest news ever. Because not only are they going to receive this bountiful land, this fertile land, they are also going to get to see God slay giants. They're going to get to see God come up against opponents that are far greater than them, that outsize them and outrank them like Clemson and the Citadel. And they're going to get to see God step in on behalf of Citadel and slay Clemson on on, on their behalf. Or they can view it as bad news. They can view it through the lens of the ten spies, through the majority report. They can see it through the eyes of those that that go and they see the giant people with the giant armies and the giant swords. And they can sit there having the promise of God, but hearing the majority of report and think, this is impossible. What a disappointment. How is it that God could bring us so far, so, so, through so many trials, through so many travails, through, through so much controversy and difficulty in our lives to only bring us to this place so that now, now we are blocked literally by armies of giants. And so do you know how they respond? They weep. They weep. They don't celebrate. They weep. All night long, they weep. They weep and weep and they wail and they shred their clothes and they cry out until they wake up the next morning exhausted, worn down, threadbare, ready to throw rocks at the heads of their leaders until they're dead. How is it that you could tell me that this is what God has said? How is it that you could tell me that this is what the Lord would have? How is it that you could convince us that this is what God has said? Dismissing the plagues, dismissing the Red Sea, dismissing the manna that had fallen from the heads, dismissing it all and viewing only the spies' majority report through the eyes of unbelief. You see, nothing reveals a nominal faith like negativity. Nothing reveals a nominal faith like negativity. A convenient faith cannot withstand the temptation to join in with the pessimism of the majority report. You see, despair thrives only when faith doesn't exist. Despair thrives only where there is unbelief. Despair thrives only when there is no chance and no hope of what will come next. And so I want to ask you this morning. When you look at society, 
and it's not going the way that you think it ought to go. When you look at your marriage and it's not going the way that you think it ought to go. When you look at your role in the world and the place that you have and the place that you work and the job that you hold and none of that seems to be going the way that you think that it ought to go. Do you trust what your friends say? Or do you trust what God has promised? Do you trust what your friends say or do you trust what God has promised? That is, are you looking to a mistress or are you looking to Facebook lights? Or are you looking to the approving looks of your friends? Or are you looking for fresh gossip as a convenient way to feel better? Or is God's promise to never leave you and to never forsake you good enough for you? That is, what do you prioritize? A convenient faith prioritizes the majority opinion over God's word. When you have hardship and bad news coming into your life, do you get swept up in the bad news? And do you weep as the people of Israel wept? Or are you able to look through the lens of the promises of God to say, no, 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 no. This is going to be turned into good news for me. This is going to be turned into a situation in which I, in my life, get to watch God slay the giants, slay the giants of my headaches, and slay the giants in my marriage, and slay the giants that are in my job so that my life is able to fulfill the role in his providence that he has set before me to fulfill. See, it's hard not to think of Matthew seven thirteen when you realize that Israel is going to accept the majority report of the spies, isn't it? It's hard to not remember what Jesus says when Jesus says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. You see, they have chosen the easy path. They have chosen the easy path. Another way to describe the easy path is the convenient path. The type of path in which you get to do what you want to do and do what doesn't cost you anything. The, the type of path in which you get to have Jesus on a shelf in your life so that you can pull him down and use him whenever it's easy, whenever it's beneficial, whenever it helps a conversation, whenever it advances a relationship, whenever it benefits a business deal, whenever it enables you to get your wife off of your back. You can pull Jesus down and you can lecture your children with a supposed moral high ground. But when you need to put him up so that you can indulge yourself so that you can so that you can get on the guys that work for you so that you can chew out the people that you want to chew out so that you can be shrewd and unethical when you need to be shrewd and unethical so that you can have sex with whoever you want to have sex with then you can put Jesus back up on the shelf in your life and totally dismiss him because after all after all who actually lives that way we're not perfect right see It's a path of convenience. It's a form of the Christian faith that requires no actual faith. Matthew 7 also talks about that, right? Jesus talks about how there are people who believe that they are able to do certain things for Jesus and then when they come before heaven, believe that they are in the kingdom of God because they at some point claim that he was Lord, right? You say to me, Lord, Lord, and I say, depart from me for I never knew you. You say, no, 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 no. We cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Your convenient faith never 
penetrated your heart. Your convenient faith elevated you in the eyes of men and it elevated you in the opinion you have of yourself, but it never actually reached the floor of heaven. It never actually reached until you believed with all of your heart, with all the fire in your bones, that Jesus is the Lord. You see, one of the things that you have to remember is that this wide gate, this wide path, is the path of the majority, right? It's the path of the majority. That this is the path where most people are. Friends, if you look up and examine your life only to realize that you talk like most people that you know and live like most people that you know and treat Jesus like most people that you know, if you wake up to realize that you're following the majority opinion, then it's important for you to realize that the majority of people are on a wide path, on an easy path that is headed to destruction. Now trust what God has said. Trust what God has promised over what your friends have said. Obey Jesus no matter the cost. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him. The second thing that you'll notice this morning is that a convenient faith measures God's goodness with Egypt's ruler. A convenient faith measures God's goodness with Egypt's ruler. You can imagine as they spend the night weeping, right? that they're desperate and they're frustrated and they're at the end of themselves and they begin to, to talk about just exactly what it means to, to, to what, what the next steps are and what it looks like. And they begin to reimagine that if the situation had been different. And so you can imagine how they said this, at least in Egypt, right? That would have been the phrase, at least in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we knew where we were gonna sleep at night. At least in Egypt, we knew that our children would grow to adulthood. At least in Egypt, we knew where our food was coming from. At least in Egypt, we had variety when it came to our food. At least in Egypt, at least in Egypt, and at least in Egypt, that God had taken Israel out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in the hearts of Israel. You see, they were living their lives, measuring the goodness of God by the standards that they had come to expect and know in Israel. That is, they were measuring God's will and God's goodness by their prosperity. It's like they had this little Egypt ruler in their pocket and they could pull it out. And they could go and they could measure it. Look at how many different times they mentioned Egypt here. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Why is the Lord... Uh, bringing us into this land to fall by the swords, our, our wives and our little ones, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That three different times. And remember what we've said about Hebrew, how Hebrew uses th- groups of three to, to emphasize like five exclamation points after the mark. And so here they are saying, look, look, we keep pulling out our ruler for Egypt and we keep measuring what we have and all that God has given to us falls short of what we knew in Egypt. That is, we would rather have Egypt, enslaved as we were, as imperfect as it was, rather than a kingdom of God that we can't see perfect as it is. That we would rather have an Egypt that we can see than a kingdom of God that we can't see. We would be able to, rather be able to live by our eyes than we would live by our faith. It's breathtaking. And so do you know what they decide? They decide they're going to abandon the covenant. 
they are going to abandon the covenant. It's breathtaking that the people of God have received the kindness of God by God's grace and by God's mercy. God, even when they rebelled, even when they melted down all of their teeth and earrings to form a golden calf and bowed down to it, God had forgiven them and God had placed his glory and his presence right in their midst and having his glory and his presence right in this midst was was an offering of mercy to them, an offering of grace. And here's what they decide, now we'll do without. We're good, we're good. We'll turn around and go our own way. We're going to head back to Egypt. Moses, Aaron, you guys do your thing. We're going to stone you, bury you right here. This is obviously where you like to be. We're going to, we're going to head on back, though, and, and take care of the kids. We're going to head on back and, you know, eat some fresh Egypt stew or something. They were abandoning the covenant because the covenant wasn't measuring up to their standards of prosperity. Oh, brothers and sisters, we measure the same way, don't we? My goodness, we measure the same way. We're inclined to pull out our little American rulers to measure whether or not God has been good to us. We pull out our ruler and we measure our house. We pull out our ruler and we measure our salary. We pull out our ruler and we measure, measure our 401k. We pull out our ruler and we measure the stock market. We pull out our ruler and we measure our marriage and our family and our children. We pull out our ruler and we measure our health. And if in those situations we don't see the marked hand of prosperity in our lives, then we assume that the goodness of God has forsaken us. Because you see, there is nothing more miserable than trying to live for God while you're still thirsty for Egypt. Trying to live for God while you're still thirsty for the world. See, I wonder when the world, when the world looks enticing to you, do you want to give up your faith? When the world looks tasty to you, when the world looks delicious to you, Are you willing to compromise on your faith? That is, is your faith convenient or is your faith convictional? When all of a sudden a man starts noticing you in the gym and you haven't had a man notice you in a long time, are you willing to lay down your faith? When God says to give and to go and to deny yourself and you want to spend and indulge and enjoy Are you ready to go back on your faith, to give your faith back, to turn away from the kingdom of God and turn back your face to Egypt? When the computer screen glows late at night and nobody else is around and nobody else will know and you want to enjoy and and indulge in the satisfaction of a pornographic habit, do you want to lay down your faith? Because you see, you should be warned. You should be warned. You see what it says? But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall where? In the wilderness. What did they ask for? What did they say? Oh God, it would have been better if we just died in the wilderness. God, it would have been better if you would have just let us die in Egypt. So what does God say? Mark my word. I will give you what you want. I will give you what you want. Listen, brothers and sisters. If what you want is an easy life on earth, if what you want is to build your kingdom here, if what you want is to be able to measure your success by the American ruler and see whether or not it all measures up, you might want to watch out because God may just very well give you what you please. You know, there's a parable of a rich fool. 
who built an empire, who had everything that you could want, who could buy anything that he want, but God says this day, your life will be required of you. And instantly he, stand, he stood before the tribunal of heaven only to reach and to receive a sentence of condemnation upon his life. Because he had measured his life with the wrong ruler. He had measured his life with the ruler of Egypt when there was a measurement of faith that was called forward. See, that's the fate of a convenient fate. That's the fate of a convenient fate. Death by by the delicious poison of the world. See, most people prefer an America they can see broken as it is over the promise of a kingdom they can't see perfect as it is. Our enemy attacks us, not with disgusting, uh, disgusting demons and egregious sins most often, but most often he, he attacks us with beautiful sin. Like David looking over his rooftop and seeing Bathsheba bathing. That he comes and Satan's poison is not often bitter. Rather, it's sweet and delicious. It's, it's tangible, something we can have in the here and the now. It's like when he offered Jesus in the wilderness, the whole earth, like Satan offered Jesus the the whole earth in the wilderness and apart from the cross. It's like when he offered to, to Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray the Son of Man, something he could have right now, something that he could indulge himself on, something that he could spend and enjoy. And it's the same thing that he offers you when he offers you a Hollywood romance without the commitment. It's the same thing that he offers you when he offers you an entire life devoted toward leisure. It's the same thing that he offers to you when he takes you and offers you more hours for more money so that you can have more things at the expense of your faith and the expense of your marriage and the expense of your family. It's the same things that he's offering you. That he's doing whatever it takes And brothers, we must be wary of it, that it is to chase after the world is to abandon the Lord. If you want to return to Egypt, you can't return to Egypt while remaining in the will of God. If you want to return to Egypt, you can't return to Egypt while remaining in the promises of God. You're either going to live by the conviction of faith or you're going to live by the convenience of the modern day. But you have to choose. This day, you have to choose. You have to decide whether or not you are going to give your life holy with a fire in your bones devoted to Christ or whether you're going to turn back. Whether you're going to turn back and try to live your life as a Friends episode. You have to choose. I wonder how you're measuring the goodness of God by your prosperity or by his promises. Are you measuring the goodness of God by your prosperity or by his promises? And that brings us to the final thing that you'll notice about a convenient faith in our text this morning. A convenient faith camouflages disobedience as concern for the family. That's a mouthful, but stay with me. A convenient faith camouflages disobedience as concern for the family. Now, I want you to see if this logic sounds familiar to you. Well, obviously, we can't be radical for the Lord. Obviously, we can't go chasing down giants. Obviously, we can't go asking for war because we have our kids to think of. We have our families to think of. 
We can't just go charging with the gates of hell with a water pistol. What about the children? Who's going to teach my son how to throw a curveball? Who's going to help my little girl with her science projects? See, abandoning the call of God in the name of the family is not new, brothers and sisters. It is not new. It simply simply becomes a noble excuse to ignore the word of God. They might as well have said that church and faith are important, but if you focus on them too much, then your children will will get behind. That spending more time and energy and money on lessons and tutors and scholarship pursuits than you do on the development of your child's faith is just a 21st century way of saying that our children would be better off living in Egypt. See, our families provide us with the most noble excuse possible to pursue Egypt with our lives. They transform our materialism and our self-promotion and our self-indulgence into nobility. But noble disobedience is a category that only exists in the minds of wretched sinners. More truly, our families are not camouflaging what uh, a noble attempt to elevate their families. Our, our families are camouflaging an unbelief that God will take as good a care of our children as we will. See, we're convinced. We're convinced that we care more about our babies than God does. We're convinced that He cares more about our sons and daughters than we do, than, than, that we care more about them than He does. We're we're convinced that we take into account all of the discriminating factors in their lives more than God himself does. And you know what? Right now, there are books that, there are tons of books that you can buy. There are conferences that you can attend. You know what all of them are about? How can we keep our children from abandoning the faith? How can we keep our children from abandoning? I don't even think, I think they're good conferences. I think you ought ought to go to them. You ought to read the books. Brothers and sisters, I think it's time for us to recognize something. Our children are not abandoning the faith. They're inheriting our faith. They're inheriting our faith. They aren't leaving the faith. They just don't believe the same way that we don't believe. And because there is not the social benefit for them to pretend the way there is social benefit for us to pretend, they just don't pretend. They don't fake it the way that we do. They aren't abandoning the faith. They're inheriting our faith. I want you to look at what it says in verse 33. Man, this is a sober glass of water for us. It says, they've said in verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the swords? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Now listen to what it says in verse 33. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Do you see what it's saying? They're pretending to protect the children. They're pretending to defend the children. You know what God says? Because of your faithlessness. Because you're attempting to camouflage your unbelief. Because you're attempting to cover your unbelief under the guise of nobility, they will suffer. They will not be able to come in and enjoy the promised land as they are supposed to. Instead, 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 they will have to feel the weight of your condemnation as they wait 40 years in the wilderness, living in the desert. In other words, he says they're going to come into the promised land. 
I'm going to take care of your children. You think I'm going to betray your, I'm going to take care of your children. I'm going to bring them into the promised land. I'm going to let them know a land that flows with milk and honey. I'm going to let them experience the bounty of the land. I'm going to do all of that. But before they get there, there will be a period of suffering that is because of you. In other words, because of you, your children suffer. Because of me, your children prosper. Because of you, your children suffer. Because of me, your children prosper. In other words, God is more trustworthy with your family than you are. Do you believe that? God is more trustworthy with your family than you are. Notice in verse 12 what it says. I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Do you know what that is? That's children language, isn't it? Who who receives an inheritance from their father? Children. And as, the, as, as God takes in the scope of, of the rebellion and the abandonment of the covenant, do you know what he says? He says, well, fine, Moses, I'll take you and Aaron, I'll make you into a nation, I will disinherit all of my children. In other words, here are the parents, here are the parents trying to help their children prosper. Here are the parents trying to help their kids get all of the the ACT uh, prep courses that they need to be able to get all the scholarships that they want, to be able to have all of the athletic opportunities that they can need. Here they are trying to take them back to Egypt because they believe that is what's best for the kids when the truth of the matter is they are on the edge of having their own children disinherited by the kindness of God. It is trying to save their children. They condemned their children. See, we don't prioritize reading the Bible and praying together and worshiping together. We say that we're Christians when it's convenient, but we don't actually follow through with any obedience with our children. We ensure, though, that they eat well. We ensure, though, that they do all their homework. We ensure, though, that they practice and do the ACT prep classes. And, man, I'm not, I'm, I promise you, I'm not trying to, to beat you up, but do you know what all of these things are? These are our attempts to save our children from the world. These are our attempts to try to promote in them a successful life and an easier life and a more convenient life and a more leisurely life than the lives that we have known. But in trying to save them, we have placed them on the broad path. We have walked them through the wide gate and it's easier and it's more convenient, but it is the way to destruction. It is the way to destruction. What if by trying to save our children, we condemn them instead? What if by trying to give them the world, we rob them of eternity? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. When I was growing up, I was really close to my great granddad. He was just my person, you know? I think growing up, every kid just has that one. Maybe it's a mom, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's a grandparent, but they just, they become your person, you know? The one you kind of gravitate to. And man, my great-granddad, he was just my person. He loved to tell stories, and I loved to listen to stories. And I, I think that's why, as I've grown up, I've, I've really loved to be a storyteller myself. But we would sit, and for hours and hours and hours, he would tell me the stories about growing up post-depression and growing up in a, an era of sharecropping and growing up as a, and going off to the Korean War and fighting and, and, and having to endure incredible poverty and doing whatever you can to, to make it by. And man, I, just, I was just mesmerized, and I hung on every word that he said. 
And, and I can remember one day I was in college, and it was near the end of his life. And he called me over, and he started telling me this story. He told me about this time while he was away overseas uh, for the war that he had an opportunity to go to Switzerland. And while he was in Switzerland, he toured one of the Bulova factories there in Switzerland. And he said, we walked through and we, we saw, and, and my, my granddad was just a mechanical genius. Anything mechanical was just his world. And they had this new self-winding watch that wound itself by the motion of you flicking your wrist that it didn't have to have a battery. And he walked, and he said, I remember, and he told me, he said, I pointed to it and I said, I want that one. I want that one. And about that time, he pulled out this watch and he gave it to me. And he had my name carved in the back of it. And I held that watch. And you know, it's not a particularly expensive watch or valuable watch to you. But for me, it's a lot more than a watch. For me, it represents all the the courageous things that my great-granddad did. It represents all those times sitting on the porch and hearing him tell the stories. I, I can still hear him as he would lower his voice as he came to the climax of the story. I can hear the the southern sayings that dripped off of his tongue, the thick accent that that he spoke with. I can can hear him talk about his dad and his his mom. I can hear him talk about all of his brothers and sisters and the bar fights and just all the different things that made my great-granddad my great-granddad. I inherited a lot more than a watch. The watch just represented it. And brothers and sisters, one of these days you're going to step out of this life and into the next. And your children are going to inherit from you a lot more than a moth-eaten house. They're going to inherit from you a lot more than rusted-out precious metals. They're going to inherit from you a faith, one way or the other. What kind of faith are they going to inherit? A convenient one or a convictional one? Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 